So we come again today to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. And we come again to Revelation chapters 10 and 11. Uh, Today is part two of last week's sermon. Last week we had a look at Revelation chapter 10. Today we'll look at Revelation 11. But you really do need to keep those two chapters together and read and interpret them as a unit. And so if you weren't here last week, you might want to listen to last week's sermon. I'm so glad I cut my sermon in half, uh, because last week I realized I preached for 30 minutes, so who knows what would have happened if I'd tried to tackle both chapters uh, at once. Um, And so for those of you who aren't here this morning and who are listening to this on the recording, we had a deal that you'd come here, but I kind of messed up my part of the deal by not preaching as shortly as I promised. So we're, we're all good. For those of you who weren't here last week, uh, Revelation chapters 10 and 11 form a dramatic pause between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Now, these trumpets are a description of the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. They describe this period in terms of seven trumpets. Previously, this period had been described in terms of seven seals. In a few weeks' time, we'll look again as this entire period is described in terms of seven bowls. It's the same events being described over and over again. And we'll see that this morning in that the passage ends with a storm. Each of those three different descriptions ends with this same storm. And these trumpets are the natural consequences of human sin and evil. God pours out his wrath, but it's, it's almost the natural consequences of our sin that is poured out. And the natural disasters that come upon the earth are meant to act as warnings, to bring people back to God, to say, stop, look, look at what you're doing. Turn from evil, turn to me. And now these two chapters that act as this pause ask the question, what are God's people to do during the time of God's judgment on the earth? What are God's people to do during the time of persecution that comes upon the church? And the answer is one word, witness. God's people are to witness. That's what chapters 10 and 11 are all about, God's witnessing people. Now, these chapters include four visions. Uh, Last week, we had a look at the first two visions. We looked firstly at the mighty angel who commissions John and us to eat the scroll of God's word, uh, to take it into ourselves and make it part of us, yes, but also to proclaim it to others. God's word becomes precious to us. It's sweet in our mouths, but it turns our stomachs sour as we share God's word with others and watch God's word be ridiculed, be rejected, and ourselves mocked and persecuted for sharing it. We then looked secondly at the vision of the measuring of the temple in which God reassures us that while we may experience opposition and persecution on the outside, yet inwardly, And ultimately, we are safe and eternally secure. 
And this theme of God's ultimate protection of his people now continues on into the third vision that we have in these chapters, the vision of the two witnesses, before we then finally read about the sounding of the seventh trumpet. So let's have a look. We'll read all of chapter 11, so a recap of the second vision, moving into the third vision, and then the sounding of the seventh trumpet. John writes this. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. and They will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud cries in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. This is God's word.
On Wednesday evening, I had the wonderful opportunity of going to the ballet, Giselle, with my eldest daughter, Karen, at the Artscape Theatre. This was the night after I'd watched the movie The Avengers with my youngest daughter, Sarah. I've got two fairly different girls, and I like to think that I've got fairly eclectic tastes as a father. But while I was watching the ballet and enjoying the music and the movement, I started noticing something very interesting. Ballet tells a story, and it does so without using any words at all. Uh, Karen and I read the synopsis of the story before we went in, which may have actually been cheating, but the ballet itself conveys a message without any speech. I noticed that the ballet dancers had to use a lot of facial expressions, very similar to what you used to get in those old silent movies uh, in order to, to bring things across. But they also used something else. They used symbolism. At one point, Giselle takes a flower and sprinkles it over, or sprinkles the petals rather, over Albrecht's head, symbolizing forgiveness. There are various hand movements that symbolize things like promise, one hand held over the heart and the other hand raised in the air, um, or, or, or death, uh, two arms crossed together. The white costumes and veils worn by the dancers in the second part of the ballet convey the message that these are the spirits of the dead. The symbols help to convey the message. The book of Revelation is a book full of symbols. You see, even when I'm at the ballet, I'm thinking of you and uh, thinking about how best to convey the message of the book of Revelation to us all. But the pictures that we get in the book of Revelation are symbols. They're not intended to be taken literally or put on the drawing board. And these symbols and their meaning come to us from the Old Testament. Scripture always interprets Scripture. And John is presuming that his readers will be familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, which will then give them the meaning to the symbols he describes. The first symbol that we have in today's passage, the third vision of this section, is that of two witnesses. Who are these two witnesses? Now, this is generally accepted to be one of the most difficult passages in the book of Revelation, but I think there are some things that we can see. I don't think the way to understand these two witnesses as referring to two specific individuals in some future era but rather to the entire people of God, to the church of all ages. And I say that because the witnessing church has been John's focus throughout this section. The church is described in terms of two witnesses, probably because in Jewish law you could only accept testimony from two or more witnesses. You couldn't condemn someone on the basis of the evidence of one person. You needed at least two witnesses. And look at how these witnesses are described in verse 6. We are told these men have power to shut up the sky so it won't rain during the time they're prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. What does that description remind you of, or who does that description remind you of? Yeah, Moses, Elijah. 
John is describing God's people in terms of Moses and Elijah. Why choose these two figures? Well, one of the reasons is possibly because these two men stand for faithful witness in a time of opposition. Moses stood before Pharaoh, the leader of the superpower of the day, and faithfully proclaimed God's message. He turned water into blood and brought God's judgment in the ten plagues upon Egypt. On the other hand, Elijah stood before the apostate king Ahab and the pagan queen Jezebel and proclaimed God's word, even though he felt that he was the only one of God's people left in the land of Israel. He was the one who said, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain except at my word. He shut up the sky during the time that he was prophesying. Just to say that we should probably think of prophecy here as the ancient prophets who didn't simply predict the future, but, got, but reinterpreted the law for their own era. That's what prophecy is, taking God's word and proclaiming it to that particular generation. So these two figures, I believe, speak of faithful witness in the face of opposition. Here in verse 3, these men are described as two witnesses. In verse 4, John says, these are the two olive trees. Now this comes to us from the book of Zechariah. After the people return to Israel, after the exile in Babylon, Zechariah prophesies. And in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah has a vision of a huge bowl with seven lights on it. And next to this bowl are two olive trees with pipes leading from the bowl to the olive trees. One expects that the olive trees uh, give oil to the lights, but in Zechariah's vision, it's the other way around. The lights give oil to these two trees. And Zechariah hears the famous words, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. When Zechariah says that he doesn't know what these two olive trees represent, he's told by the angel that these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth, referring to Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. So two witnesses, verse 3, two olive trees, verse 4, and then two lampstands, again in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Now, where have we read about the lampstands? Well, in the very first chapter, we read how the Lord Jesus walks among the seven lampstands, referring again to his church. So the two witnesses, the, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, they all refer to the same thing. Those who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. And that's all of us. That's you. That's me. Remember Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. With your blood you purchased men and women for God and you've made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God. We are God's witnesses, and we serve him by prophesying, declaring his words to the world. Verse 3, 
And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Do you hear the echo of Jesus' words to his disciples as he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is this time period of 1,260 days? Well, go back one verse to the vision of the measuring of the temple, and you'll see that these two visions flow into each other. We're told the Gentiles will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. It's the same time period. 42 months equals 1,260 days, which equals three and a half years. And during that whole period, God's people are trampled on the one hand and yet continue to witness on the other hand. This isn't a literal three and a half years. Remember that all the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbols and not statistics. John is describing the entire period between Christ's first coming and his return in terms of three and a half years. Now, why use that particular symbolic number? Well, he's still speaking about Elijah. And remember, in James chapter 5, we are told that Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that, w- that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. John invites us to view this time period between Christ's first and second comings as being like the time of Elijah, where God's people are faithfully to speak God's word in the face of great opposition, and where God's people's prayers remain powerful and effective. And as we saw last week, this is our calling. You will be my witnesses. This is the great task that you and I have been given. And the question comes to us as we find ourselves in a time of difficulty, as we find ourselves in a world that is going through tumultuous times, the question comes to us, what are we to do? And the answer is, we're to witness. Who among my unbelieving family or friends or neighbors or colleagues am I regularly praying for at present? Who am I witnessing to? What what opportunities am I using to share my faith with others, both in what I do and in what I say? Am I supporting others who are able to do work that I cannot do? Am I being obedient to God's call to witness? We've already seen in verse 6 that the church is not powerless during this time of persecuted witness. The church has power to perform miraculous works during this time. But we also read in verse 5, If anyone tries to harm these men, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. You may remember how in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah does have power and calls down fire from heaven on his enemies. 
Now the picture is slightly different in that the two witnesses, the church, have the authority to speak God's judgment against the world. That is the power that they have, the power of their mouths to speak God's word of judgment against the world. And I think that this is where the imagery of Moses and Elijah becomes important again. You'll remember that these are the two great figures who appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Most commentators point out the fact that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, although Elijah wasn't in fact a writing prophet. That term, the law and the prophets, over time became a way to refer to the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember when Jesus is meeting with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Sorry, excuse me. (coughs) Sorry. Sorry, so, so the law and the prophets representing the, the scriptures. And Jesus placed the highest value on the Old Testament scriptures. In, in John chapter 5, when, John, when Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, he says to them, the scriptures testify about me. And so the church reaches out to the world and calls it to repentance repentance through the scriptures. The church proclaims the scriptures, the law and the prophets who in turn bear witness to Christ. I think this is so important. When we read how John describes the church here in the figure of these two witnesses, it's easy to jump on the miraculous nature of the church's ministry. All of this calling down fire from heaven, shutting up the sky, turning water into blood, striking the earth with plagues. We like that. It makes the church sound exciting and relevant and powerful. But it's not miracles that bring an unbelieving world to faith in Jesus. It's proclaiming the gospel message about Jesus as it's found in the Old and New Testaments. God still performs sovereign acts of power through his church today. But those miraculous works always back up the proclamation of God's word rather than being an end in themselves. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so let's not be ashamed of God's word this week. Let's not be ashamed to tell people the story of a God who loves them and has created them for himself and who has sent his son into the world to die for them, to bring them back to himself. Let's not be ashamed of that message. Let's not be embarrassed about quoting a Bible verse to someone or sending it on a WhatsApp because God's word is powerful and effective and doesn't return to him empty and is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We don't have to be ashamed of God's word. I think it's also extremely important to see exactly how the church proclaims the gospel message. 
Did you notice how the two witnesses are dressed? They're clothed in sackcloth. In the Old Testament, sackcloth was a sign of repentance over sin. These two witnesses, the Church of Jesus Christ, call men and women and young people to repent, to turn from evil and turn to God. But the church is dressed in sackcloth. The church itself is a repenting church. We too need to constantly be turning from evil and turning to God. We're a repenting church. We have to ourselves turn from evil and turn to God. We don't witness from some sort of moral high ground. We don't call people up to where we are. We acknowledge that we're sinners, sinners saved by grace. And we come alongside people and tell them about the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. As one person puts it, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. The church needs to be a repenting church all the time. Otherwise, what happens is we lose a sense of that. We think that we're superior, and then sometimes we fall. And the world sees a terrible message of what the church, what they think the church is and and what it isn't. And so again, our mission for this week is this, in the words of 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So what happens when God's people faithfully and fearlessly proclaim his word? Well, in verses 7 to 12, we read again about the awfulness of the persecution that God's people will face. We are introduced to a figure that John will describe in more detail later on in the book, but we read about this great beast who comes up from the abyss and kills the two witnesses. Their bodies lie unburied, which was one of the worst things that could happen to you in that culture, the greatest shame. And men and women from every tribe, language, and nation gaze on their bodies and gloat over them and celebrate by sending one another presents uh, to celebrate the death of these prophets who had tormented them. Why tormented? Because as we've seen, God's word disturbs us and cuts us and pierces us. And so men and women oppose God and his word and do so to the death. They hated and persecuted and killed the Lord Jesus. And they will do the same to those who faithfully proclaim Jesus' word, as he said would happen. A servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But you know, throughout history, it is always too early to celebrate the death of God's church. Verses 11 and 12 But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. The world's celebrations over the death of the church are always premature. After a short time, just three and a half days, these witnesses are raised to life, and their testimony is vindicated. And there are so many places on earth 
and periods in history where at some points it looks as if the church has been totally wiped out. Places like China and Russia. And yet the church continues to grow and to thrive. Notice the important pattern of faithful witness that we see in this chapter, though. Witnesses win when they die. In fact, our English word martyr comes from the Greek word for witness. Witnesses win when they die. Remember that back in chapter 1, Jesus is described as the faithful witness, the faithful martyr. Jesus overcomes by being defeated. He wins by losing. He lives by dying. And those who seek to be his faithful witnesses do so by following in his footsteps. William Barclay puts it this way in his commentary on the book of Revelation. Unbelievers are won by the sacrificial death of the witnesses. Here is the story of the cross and of the resurrection all over again. Evil must be conquered and people won not by force, but by the acceptance of suffering for the name of Christ. Well, as these two witnesses are brought up to heaven, we read in verse 13 that there's a terrible earthquake and a tenth of the city collapses and 7,000 people are killed. It seems terrible, but this in fact is good news. How, How is this good news? Well, we're being told that the witness of the church is effective. The city is saved. Yet, yes, one-tenth of the city is destroyed, but nine-tenths are saved. It's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 6, we read about God's judgment on the nation of Israel, and there we're told that in that judgment, only a tenth of the cities are spared. Nine-tenths are destroyed. Here it's the reverse. Only one-tenth is destroyed. Nine-tenths are saved through the witness of the suffering church. Or go back to the example of Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah cries out to God and says, I'm the only one in Israel who serves you. And God says, no, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Only 7,000 in all of Israel who served God under Elijah. Here in Revelation 11, the numbers are reversed. 7,000 are killed, but the rest are saved through the witness of God's suffering church. Well, finally in this passage, we have the sounding of the seventh trumpet from verse 15. After the trumpet is sounded, we hear the voices from heaven saying, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In other words, the seventh trumpet is the final trumpet. This is a description of the very end. In verse 17, the 24 elders worship God by saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. No longer do they say, and is to come, because by this stage of John's description, he has come. This is a description of the end. And we read that the wrath of the nations against God's church is now replaced by the wrath of God against the nations who have rejected him and his son. 
We don't have time to look at this now, but the best commentary on this section is Psalm 2, which describes the nations refusing to accept God's Son and therefore experiencing God's wrath. This is why, as Pastor Darrell Johnson puts it in his book on Revelation, the Hallelujah Chorus is experienced as a woe. George Frederick Handel based his famous Hallelujah Chorus on Revelation 11 verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. But in Revelation 11 verse 14, the angel says that the sounding of the seventh trumpet is a woe. The second woe is past, the third woe is coming, and then there's the sounding of this trumpet. And the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus becomes a woe. Why? Well, it's a woe only if you don't want the kingdom of God to come. The news that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ is only good news if you want that king to reign. But if you want the kingdom of the world to keep on going and going as it always has, then the fact that God reigns becomes very bad news indeed. So so often over the past two years of this COVID pandemic, I've wished that my life would just go back to normal. How many of you haven't wished the same? Even at the moment, as I pray for the war in Ukraine to end, part of my motive, if I'm honest, is that things will just settle down so that I can get on with my normal life. Pastor John Piper asks a question in one of his books that is searingly penetrating. He asks, do we eagerly long for the coming of Christ or do we want him to wait while our love affair with the world runs its course? Do we eagerly long for the coming of Christ or do we want him to wait while our love affair with the world runs its course? The fact of the matter is that all of human history is moving towards the time when Jesus will come back to be with his people. We've run out of time to look at it, but that's what the final verse, verse 19, is all about. As the temple is opened, the ark of the covenant is seen. The holy of holies, which used to be only be able to be entered by the high priest and only once a year and only with blood, is now open to God's people. And the picture symbol is of God coming to finally, eternally dwell intimately with those who love him. Jesus is coming again. That's where all of human history is headed. And so Revelation chapters 10 and 11 have the same purpose, to strengthen and encourage the evangelism of the church of the living God. As Pastor Paul Blackham puts it, these two chapters tell us that the one job we have to do in this passing age is to be faithful witnesses to the Lamb who was slain. Whatever else we do in life is nothing compared to our evangelism. We love the gospel message we've been entrusted with, but if we're faithful to it, we will certainly be unpopular with non-Christians. We will find our jobs our relationships, our credibility, our friendships, our family connections, all under threat because of the irreconcilable conflict between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of our Lord. 
And that may be true for you this week. If you step out in faith and share a Bible verse or share with a friend, you may indeed be persecuted. But while these chapters commission us, they also comfort us. While we may face persecution, maybe even death, we are ultimately and eternally secure. Our dying leads to eternal life, not only for us, but even for those who witness our dying in Christ. And we can say with complete confidence and assurance and certainty and anticipation that one day, one actual day on a calendar in the future, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the assurance and the reassurance that you give us through your word today. We are safe with you. Help us to go out in the assurance and the encouragement that that gives us and fearlessly proclaim Jesus is Lord to a world that so desperately needs to hear it today. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing a, a hymn of commitment that challenges us to do that very thing. Let's stand together. Sing it, ask unfinished, that drives us on our knees. A need that's undiminished, rebukes us lawful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, bring you before thy throne. The solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied thee defy thee still today. With none to heed their crying for love and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and passing to the night. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours. Fired by the same ambition, to thee we yield our power.
sustained them, O Spirit who inspired. Saviour whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untied. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake. Forth on thy errand send us to labour for thy sake. Amen. Well, please come and join us for coffee outside where you can at least take your mask off. <laughs> and uh, let's share the benediction with one another as we go, which means turning around and looking at people while you try and remember the words. <laughs> Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us and remain with us now and forevermore. Amen. You'd make great Anglicans.